Good evening. Um, thrilled to be here. Uh, really, really important and exciting event tonight. Um, and I think it's an auspicious time to be having this event, to be launching both the book on impact and social sciences, but also seeing a hopefully very stimulating panel debate. Um, most of you in this room will know that nearly a year ago, there was um, a landmark moment um, in terms of attacks on social science funding in the shape of Senator Tom Coburn's now infamous amendment to restrict the kind of um, research the National Science Foundation was entitled to um, support in political science. And it caused a great deal of consternation when it happened. There was a flurry of debates and advocacy and lobbying. And it was um, also, I think, worryingly a harbinger of what felt like things to come. Um, it, I, I'm very glad to say that Sage was also part of that um, advocacy effort, as were many people um, in this room and related umbrella organizations. And I say it's an auspicious time because it's a wonderful thing, as again, I think many of you will know, to see that last week that infamous amendment was finally repealed. So we actually saw the argument get through. Um, and the final legislation for the Appropriations Bill does not contain the Coburn Amendment. So that's a reason to feel uplifted and buoyant, but it's not a reason to feel complacent. Um, I think we know and understand that social science often um, is up against it when it comes to getting its point across. It's often misconstrued, misreported. Um, its impact is often considered um, to be um, lesser in some ways than other, other fields. And so um, it's particularly important um, and to, to see such um, a wonderful uh, culmination of effort on both data analysis and theory that's, that's come out in the, uh, the impact book that we're, we're celebrating today. I, I want to just congratulate um, Jane and Simon and Patrick for an extraordinary job, actually, in pulling together such a wealth of data, and you'll be hearing a lot more about it. And we're publishing it both in the UK and the US. As I say, let's not be complacent. Even the illustrious WH Auden said, thou shalt not commit, um, or thou, thou shalt not sit with statisticians nor commit to social science. And I think we need to make sure that we're getting the argument out ahead of ourselves. Um, the last thing I'd want to mention is that I think one of the great values of this book is it faces a lot of distinctions of disciplines within the social sciences and indeed beyond the social sciences. And going back to the Coburn Amendment and that particular, particular bun fight, it was great to see full-throated support coming from the physicists, um, from uh, physical scientists of all kinds, including the AAAS. And I think ultimately the argument for the social sciences will be best carried when we see actually that all forms of inquiry and knowledge claims are fundamentally interrelated. And I'm sure we'll hear more about that later. So, as I say, an auspicious and exciting time. Very much looking forward to um, uh, the debate and, um, and, the, and the, the tweets that you'll all be sending out. Um, and so, with that, I'd like to introduce Lord Nick Stern to come up and um, open up the event. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, am I close enough to this microphone for you to hear me in the back? Very good. Nice to see some physical activity too. Um, now, um, I'm here um, to welcome uh, a great book by um, colleagues um, here at the LSE. Uh, it is of tremendous importance um, in its own right as an interesting piece of work, but also in the impact itself impact it itself will have on how people see the impacts of the social sciences. In case anybody should really think that there's a case to be made, 
um, about the role of the social sciences in the economy as a whole, um, just look at the numbers. We are an economy that's 70-75% services. If you look at the uh, rate of growth of productivity, we haven't had much rate of growth of productivity in the last few years, but if you look at the rate of growth of productivity in the uh, decade or so that preceded um, the recession, you will see that the biggest drivers were personal and business services. Now, of course, services have technology within them, but there are lots of other sectors which are not classified as services, which have lots of services within them. Think of an oil company. An oil company is finance, risk uh, management, law, international relationships, anthropology, economics, with a little bit of geology and a small piece of kit attached. But it's mostly those things. And if you say that to an oil company, they'll say, yes, of course. You know, that's, that's obvious. So the things we do as social scientists, and indeed the humanities as well, are just everywhere. Now, I want to speak um, from my own experience of trying to have an impact. And I'm not going to explain the book to you. I didn't write it, and other people will explain the book to you, and it's splendid. Um, let me just talk from three different perspectives, or three different hats amongst the hats that I've worn over time. The first is as a policy advisor, whether it be international, uh, when I was chief economist of the World Bank, chief economist of the EBRD, or head of the government economic service in the UK. Let me start with head of the government economic service in the UK. As one of the things I, I, I did this, the Stern Review when I did that on climate change, I'll mention it briefly, but uh, when I began, I wanted to try to understand, as head of the Government Economic Service, what the Government Economic Service was contributing to decisions in the um, civil service. And we had a chief economist in each of the main, uh, indeed most of the departments. So what I did is I asked the members of the GES and the uh, chief economist of the department to evaluate the role of evidence in the policy decisions that took place in the department. Self-report amongst the economists in those departments about the role of evidence in decision-making. Now, um, some of them said it was very important, and some of them said it had no importance at all. Now, it's sufficiently long ago that I'm going to reveal one or two examples. The DWP, as it then was, uh, said that evidence was very important. Department of Work and Pensions, evidence was very important in the decisions that it took, and it was actually quite a strong department at that time. I, I don't comment about it at the moment. And the Home Office said uh, almost uh, no role for evidence in decision-making. Uh, I rest my uh, case. Um, I was at the World Bank, and uh, as Chief Economist of the World Bank, you talk to finance ministers and prime ministers who are fairly lonely people. They don't know whether to trust their civil servants or not, maybe a little bit, but they're keen to talk to somebody else. But that somebody else who comes in, in my case, Chief Economist of the World Bank, um, and same when I was Chief Economist of the EBRD before, is that you have to be persuasive. You have to lay out reasons why um, the things that you're suggesting might be credible, because they're the people who have to take the decisions. And lots of things matter. But most, of, most important in, the, in that context is the power of the example. 
Thank you very much, Professor Stern. What you say is very interesting. Name one country that followed the uh, line that uh, you've just suggested. Indeed, one of my predecessors was, uh, Stan, as chief economist of the World Bank was Stan Fisher, and late one night we came to the conclusion that uh, 1,000 regressions is equal to 10 theorems is equal to one example in terms of the uh, persuasive power. So you learn then just how important evidence is. And it's not the, poli the policy-based evidence that counts. Policy-based evidence is when your minister takes a decision and wants you to find the evidence in support of the decision that he's just taken. It's evidence-based policy that really counts and not the other way about. So I've seen how good advice based on uh, serious work can, with the right kind of environment, not always, but the right kind of environment, make a difference. Um, let me say something very briefly about climate change. I can see in the audience two or three members of the Stern Review, so uh, welcome. That's very nice to see you. Um, we were trying to lay out social science evidence around a problem which arises because of some very fierce science. And in order to do that, you have to understand the risks that the science is describing. You have to think about them, talk to the scientists, but you then have to relate them to people's lives and the risks that people run. And uh, that was what we tried to do. Um, it's about understanding and managing risk, and that's a very clear example where the sciences and the social sciences intersect, intersect strongly. You have to understand as well what's involved in the transition to a low carbon economy and the investments that might be necessary in that. And again, the evidence from economic uh, history and waves of te technological change are very important and weaving in the possibilities and the examples of how some changes come about are also very important. That can be the advances that we've seen from Mayor Bloomberg in New York City. It can be the way in which uh, low-cost solar PV has spread across Bangladesh. Um, there are a number of examples now that we can point to, but it's those examples and assembling them in a persuasive way that um, gives you traction. Now, the last thing I want to do is to uh, draw uh, attention to uh, something that we've published in the British Academy called Prospering Wisely, which is uh, very much in the spirit uh, of this book. Um, uh, in true uh, fashion, I'm going to wave it at you, but I'll also wave the book at you. <laughs> and what we've tried to do is to bring the humanities and the social sciences, because the British Academy is about excellence in the humanities and the social sciences, and we've tried to show, by assembling examples and uh, thoughts from various uh, fellows of the British Academy in a structured way, what, a, a, what difference serious examples, serious analysis uh, can make to understanding the key aspects of what policy should be all about. Now, prospering wisely, well, no one's in favour of uh, impoverishment unwisely, but prospering wisely is something that uh, is, I think, strong in posing questions in just those two words. What does it mean to prosper? What are the dimensions? of prosperity. What do we mean by wisely? Well, it, one part of that is that it can last, it's sustained, it's not uh, fragile, and so on. So prospering wisely is really starts with what should policy be about, and that is something that we examine very carefully. Uh, we call it living better, um, and there are many dimensions to do that. The challenges of understanding what it means, and of course, measuring. 
Of course, it's not just looking at the outcomes. It's also looking at the processes which produce those better outcomes. And a healthy, open democracy is a key part of that story. How, does the, how do those democratic processes work? What rights do people have? Um, are what actually happens to people different from, in many ways, different from the kind of rights that are articulated in, in that uh, society? What's the role of the awkward squad? Um, I think there's a very strong role for the awkward squad. Challenge uh, and being difficult sometimes is the most productive thing to be in terms of prospering wisely in terms of the dimensions that we think about, its robustness, its ability to sustain itself. And of course we have to look more deeply at particular methods. Where does innovation come from? What are the big drivers of those stories? Always an interlinkage between um, the science, the technology and the social sciences and the humanities. And let me just quote from my predecessor as president of the British Academy from uh, Prospering Wisely and that's uh, Sir Adam Roberts, one of the great uh, scholars of war and peace and uh, the legal frameworks and international relationships behind them. Best way to impoverish yourself unwisely is to uh, have a war and the um, way in which those things come about and uh, can be headed off are absolutely crucial. So let me close with this quote from uh, Adam Roberts. I do not know of a single major problem that we face, be it the environment, how to get economic growth started again, or how to reconstruct business in an era where we're past the stage of heavy reliance on industrial manufacture that does not require attention both from the physical sciences and from social sciences and humanities. Our job is to work with colleagues from different disciplines to bring our skills uh, and understand their skills and bring them together to produce real evidence. When you do that, as I can testify directly from my own professional experience, when you do that well and you've got even a moderately accepting uh, audience, you really can make a difference. And I pay tribute to this book in setting out so many ideas and structures and examples of how that can happen. So I look forward to the rest of the session and hearing more about the book. Thank you. Uh, well, good evening, everyone. My name's uh, Simon Basto. I'm one of the uh, authors of the book. Uh, Jane and I are going to spend the next ten minutes or so talking about some of the key messages uh, and uh, walking through some of the key, uh, I guess, data in the book. Um, I think first things first, it's important to say that this is very much a collective piece of research, um, taking up much of the last four years, in fact. Um, and we point out in the book that social scientists tend to, to, to publish less collaboratively than, than their science counterparts, but this is very much, or it has been very much, a, a team effort. Um, and uh, yes, indeed, uh, the names of the team amassed over in that sort of area of the room um, are on the board and in the book. Um, it's a big part of the way we do research at PPG. It is also very much a research book. Um, when we started this project, as Simon said, about four years ago, we were really surprised at the precious little literature or research there was on the scale of the social sciences in the UK. So the book has really been an attempt to, um, to redress this, to fill a gap um, and put a marker down and provide a snapshot 
of the broad front of disciplines that make up the social sciences and the impacts that they have. So when we started this work, there was no real ready-made plan of the social sciences, what you can include, what you should exclude from the, uh, the term. And this might be a reflection of the fact that not much attention had been paid to social sciences as a, as a broad front concept in the past. So uh, we really had to create a, a blueprint, um, one that spans what we might call core social science subjects in the grey, but also one that looks at the boundaries and looks at the crossovers with humanities, creative arts and, and STEM disciplines. Um, so really based on uh, this blueprint, we, uh, we, we can estimate the size, or we did, it, we did indeed estimate the size of uh, the, the sort of people value and the economic value of the social sciences to the UK. And uh, in order to do this, we enlisted the help of uh, Cambridge Econometrics. Uh, I don't know if Richard's in the room, but uh, their uh, particularly valuable, valuable report is, is on, the, on the internet, on the, the LSE blog. And so um, we can start at the very basics. Really, we, we reckon about 32,000 research staff work in the social sciences and across universities in the UK. Um, and it's funded, really, to the tune of something in the region of £850 million pounds. And we can then broaden this lens to include the 625,000 students, both undergraduate and postgraduate, that are studying on social science courses, along with the 3,000 teaching-only academics. And also, on the other side, we can look more widely at the overall value that social science departments bring to the UK economy. And this we estimate in total at £4.8 billion. Now, universities aren't the only actors in society who produce and mediate social science research. This is done by a wide range of organisations, not least the government, business, media and charities that we're going to hear from later. But work is constantly picked up by these actors, used, improved, modified and then churned back into the existing stock or inventory of knowledge. But this is not just a, a static inventory, um, and you know, it's not something we might imagine a warehouse of unsold goods. It's, it's dynamic. It gets churned, as Jane said, it gets um, adapted, it gets um, well, it evolves, really. Um, so it's something that we see as a very dynamic thing. Now, uh, in order to think about the value of social sciences, we need to take this media, the value of this mediation work into account. Along with Cambridge Econometrics, as I said, we, we estimated that there are about 400,000 people working in professional jobs across the UK, across the sectors, who use social science and mediate it um, in some significant way. And uh, we can get to a, a sort of a value of something near to £20 billion pounds, um, for how much really you know, they, they contribute to the UK economy. So the bottom line figure, when we talk about social sciences and the value of it, it's a pretty conservative estimate, but we reckon it's somewhere close to £25 billion. So for a long time, we've tended to think about disciplines in terms of their familiar silos. As we've heard, social sciences and the STEMs, humanities and the creative arts. And this slide, you can see the relative dominance of STEM disciplines. So they account for around 80% of research funding, yet only around 56% of research staff. Now, at this point, it's quite easy to lapse into uh, a tone of uh, discussion that's a bit them and us. Um, but a major message in the book is that this kind of turf warfare 
is a real constraint on being able to tackle the pressing research challenges that we face. Far better, we think, to see these challenges through the lens of three different types of systems. So there will be some systems and some research challenges uh, that involve an understanding of what we essentially call natural systems. Really things that don't interact directly with uh, human behaviour, social behaviour. Um, things that sort of happen off-planet, possibly, or the laws of uh, pure maths, astrophysics, for example. But, you know, we think a lot, a lot of research challenges, as Lord Stern was intimating, um, are really in the sort of the areas of human influence systems and human-dominated systems. By human influence systems, we're saying really that, uh, you know, that these are systems that are partly influenced by humans, but not completely, uh, but also systems that are almost you know, predominantly or wholly influenced by, by human behaviour. Um, we might say you know, the problems of building cities, the markets, um, information systems, and so on. So we would position social sciences, as I said, right sort of slap bang in the middle of those two areas. Um, and you know, we would also argue that they have an integrative role to play, both in uh, mediating across these familiar silos, the skills, the methods, the, the knowledge involved. We also talked to a lot of people during the course of this research who really saw this integrative value of social science research. For example, we heard from people in large corporations in the technology sector who told us about the importance of building social science insights into their work. And these quotes here just give uh, a flavour of that. So the executives here are talking about the role of social science in creating a commonality of language or changing the way that people think about what the key questions are. But if this integration is already happening in the private sector, as we argue that it is, then the danger is that by not responding in a broad front way, universities and academics are being left behind. So... What does all this mean for academics? Uh, how realistic is it all? Is it possible for academics to be prolific academic publishers, on the one hand, but also to be stellar impact people, uh, people who are sort of visible in society? Um, and are there only so many hours in the day? Well, yes, of course there are. Uh, so what evidence is there that academics can do both? A major part of the book, therefore, has been really to uh, compile a data set of 360 academics, and we sampled this, uh, th th this group, um, we did it in a systematic and, dare I say, lovingly, loving way. Uh, and we did a range of things over the course of a couple of years, in fact. We collected a lot of data on, on their academic outputs, um, how prolific they were, what kinds of outputs that these were, and also how visible they were. And we essentially just Googled them and um, did a job on them with all sorts of other databases and tried to collect as many signs that they were visible in society. Now... If it is a one thing or another thing, we would expect on these two variables, composite variables, external visibility and academic outputs, we would expect these dots, which represent either one academic or a number of academics, to sort of hug the axes, as it were. Um, but no, a blue blob there represents about 30% of, of our academics, and we've, we've clustered them and called them influentials and communicators and all sorts of things like that, uh, but this is really a good third of them that are, uh, that are showing that it's possible to do both. Um, 
It depends on one on an important thing that is an inclination and having the tools really to get your work out there. And um, there are some important issues with social media. So, as you can see here, the biggest single group is these publishers. Now, these are following quite a traditional academic model of head down and publish as much as is humanly possible. But this, of course, means that there's a large chunk of work that is lying there unmediated. And, um, oh, sorry, I did something. We see the role of social media here um, as being able to provide a, a catalyst to facilitate and speed up this churn of knowledge. So this social media effect that we have now shown you, um, <laughs> um, with this we expect that the visibility of academic work will improve and therefore as a result also the potential for making connections and ultimately having impact. So this leads on to our final slide. What stops academics from having impact? What are the constraints? And how are these different across the different sectors that we've been talking about? So this is a, a simplified uh, model that gives an impressionistic, perhaps controversial interpretation. Along the bottom, we've got five key aspects that academics continually mention to us as important factors. So making connections with potential partners or users, then establishing a quid pro quo between you, finding traction inside that organisation, which could be financial or an intellectual commitment to the research, and then building and extending relationships so these aren't sort of one-off projects, and finally being able to demonstrate some kind of impact. Okay, well, how do these vary across sectors? Uh, this is uh, possibly an impressionistic way, as Jane said, possibly a controversially impressionistic way. But it's, it's based on a good chunk of about four chapters in the book where we've taken different, looked at different sectors and interviewed um, hundreds, literally, of people in these sectors. We think the private sector, um, the constraints there really are sort of loaded towards the front end of this path. It's the problems of making connections... Um, having those initial conversations. Uh, also, a possible scepticism amongst academics to get involved with the private sector. Um, but we found that, you know, what, actually once those barriers had been um, overcome, uh, relationships, we found, we found some good signs of relationships. And actually, by the end of the, the trajectory, uh, demonstrating specific impacts will seem rather self-evident, given, you know, the relationships have built up to quite strong levels, and firms are spending large amounts of money on the research as well. The government trajectory and public policy bizarrely seem to sort of uh, work in, 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 in reverse for that, where because of the sort of the organisations and the infrastructure and, and the, the, the funding which sort of puts government in touch with academics, it was relatively easy for academics to get there um, and have those initial conversations. But they were telling us really that actually the problem of turnover of policy officials, uh, the problem of political priorities changing as well made it a bit difficult to find the traction and get the relationships working. And really, by the end, you have an age-old problem of really not knowing one way or another whether your research has made a difference to the policy outcome. Civil society, meanwhile, is a strange dialectic caught between the two, we, we think. Uh, it seems to sort of mirror the private sector trajectory in that um, often charities, particularly, are mission-oriented. They're quite often cash-strapped organisations. 
And so need results and need results that back up their messages quite quickly. So it's difficult for academics to, generally speaking, to get involved. But once, uh, once you get over that, again, things seem to be getting easier, but sure enough, uh, they get harder as well uh, when a lot of these charities are involved in influencing policy and, um, and money runs out and so on and so forth. So there are barriers at, at the other end of things as well. Impressionistic, fair, fair enough, but um, you know, we think this reflects quite a lot of the qualitative work that we've done. And I mean, we've now asked our panel members to give their own impressions, to speak from their own perspective um, from these sectors. So it'll be really interesting to us to hear whether they agree or perhaps disagree with what we've said. So if I can ask the panel to, to come up. Uh, we're now going to hand over to uh, the experts and, and hear from the panel. And uh, I'm handing over to Patrick Dunleavy, who's going to act as chair. Okay, so now we're in the, uh, the, uh, the meaty part of the evening, really, I suppose. Because, uh, what we uh, really wanted to do was to uh, have some uh, highly expert people, or practitioners and uh, exponents in the, in the field of uh, media, charities, business, and uh, government. Uh, and they're going to each talk for about uh, five minutes. I'm going to be rather ruthless in sort of... <laughs> Cutting them off if they if they go beyond that limit, and, uh, and then so that will give us a sense of not just looking at this from the social science side, but also looking at it from the practitioner side. And I'm sure we'll generate a lot of <coughs> queries and questions, and reactions from you, and then we'll go to a general panel discussion where we're also joined by Nick. But I won't ask Nick to repeat his very wonderful and interesting opening address. Um, I, I also I'm not going to go particularly through the. Uh, Panel members' biographies because they're they're all in this little booklet that you've got, and they're a very distinguished and hard to summarise group of highly intelligent people. Uh, but uh, I'm going to kick off by asking Mark Easton to to lead us off and give us his views and reactions. Okay, uh, I'm here. I'm supposed to represent the media. Uh, I can tell you that social scientists enjoy a mixed press. Um, the thing is, journalists like stories, uh, simple stories which chime with the prejudices of their audience. That's basically what we're about. Social science sometimes gives us just that, and that's terrific. But more often than not, it comes up with a subtly nuanced conclusion that's almost impossible to capture in a, in a single punchy headline. The hours I have spent trawling some brilliant paper for the killer phrase or stat... Uh, that might push it up the news agenda, only to find myself drowning in a sea of imponderables and caveats. <laughs> High on the um, output side, but not good on the external visibility scale. I think that's what I'm saying. Uh, social science, of course, is also about stories. Uh, and the best academics pose the right questions to produce straightforward and comprehensible answers that tell us something important and interesting about our society. So important and interesting, you'll actually hear people talking about it at the bus stop. That's the test I think you should be applying to your work. It is a, a vital job, and actually I'm going to argue that, it, that it's never been more vital. Um, do you remember what David Cameron told his most senior uh, civil servants shortly after t uh, taking office? We want to turn government on his head, Mr Cameron said. 
uh, as he explained how he would, quote, replace the system of bureaucratic accountability with a new system of democratic accountability. You all remember this stretch, really important moment. Um, the people, you see, are going to keep tabs on what the government is doing, uh, and they're going to be able to do that because they're going to open up government so everyone can see what's happening. It's all going to be transparent. And indeed, we have witnessed a tsunami of government data in the past few years. For example, Eric Pickles, I know one of your favourite uh, politicians, predicted the publication of every bit of local government or departmental expenditure over £500 would, you remember the quote, unleash an army of armchair auditors. This, I have to say, is a bit scary. Uh, not because I'm phobic about auditors, or indeed about armchairs, uh, but scary because it assumes that transparency is the same as accountability. And that patently is not the case. Politics is not about spending. It's about choices. It's about priorities. Uh, and we're promised it's actually about what works. It is about evidence-based policy. Armchair auditors <coughs> cannot deal with that kind of stuff, even when unleashed on some incomprehensible government spreadsheet. To go with evidence-based policy, we must have evidence-based analysis of what's actually happening to our country. It must be done with clear eyes, not through the prism of contemporary politics, although that might well help identify important questions, not through the prism of accepted wisdom, how often that's been proved to be wrong, but with an open-mindedness that allows for conventional thought to be challenged or turned on its head. Social science is most relevant when society is changing. And I actually think our society is changing rapidly right now. Change that actually is catching out powerful people and institutions. People are becoming, and this is what I think is the, the significant change, people are becoming less tolerant of abuse of power in all its forms. Just look at the nightly news and the morning newspapers. Our determination to condemn child abuse or the chauvinist sexual politics of the office, even if those offences occurred decades ago. Our obsession with digging up the past to see how the pillars of our establishment cheated and connived. We'll go after the dodgy cop, politician, banker, journalist too. And what's allowing that change is extraordinary access to information. I think social scientists may look back at this period, despite all the pressures, there's actually something of a golden age. Big data, new technology, coupled with a general principle now that openness and transparency are good things, means that we are allowed to lift up the rocks, see what's hidden underneath. I've spent most of my professional life trying to understand uh, what Britain is like, how it's changing. And I still find myself sometimes sitting bolt upright in my chair when I realise that something I've long assumed turns out to be plumb wrong. So for me, it is vitally important that social science academics actually ask the right questions, ensure that they answer them, when they answer them, they do so in a way that means something to non-academics to the queue at the bus stop, helping us to have not just evidence-based policy, 
And this is the key thing, that to have an informed national conversation. That's my final Thank you very much. We'll move on now to Penny Lawrence from Oxford. Thanks. So we also want uh, to change the narrative in the UK, but we also want to change the narrative in the world as Oxfam, and we want to overcome the injustice that is poverty. Uh, We are full of people who are passionate about that mission, whether they have their feet on the ground in a country responding to a humanitarian crisis or trying to influence the terms of the debate or advocate uh, for change in a policy arena. And we've learned, of course, that having evidence to do that is really important. But that's changed over time. So if somebody gave us £5 a few years ago, they'd want to know what we'd done with it. These days, if they've given us £5, they want to know, and what was the result of that money? So we've had to change with the times. We've had to use evidence to describe the problem. One in eight people go to bed hungry in the world. 20 years ago, there were 2 billion people that were abjectly poor. In 2010, there were 1 billion people that were abjectly poor. So we are making progress. We need to know about rates of vaccination, employment. The data is phenomenal. But we have a culture where, certainly in Oxfam, and I think it's the same in most, um, in most international NGOs, we like to discuss and we know we, we're much more comfortable with what we think rather than what we know. So you've got a counterculture there that is, that is quite a challenge. But we have developed uh, research methodologies ourselves, and we've tried to link to academics uh, on research. And we've tried to understand what we've got ourselves as well. So this rather complicated diagram, which here we are, sort of tries to show you that uh, we're trying to both inform and influence ourselves, but be informed and influence as well. And we ended up a few years ago creating a small research team who sit in Oxford who support us all in that process, both externally with external actors uh, on the left and internal actors uh, on the right. So uh, last week we published, focusing on the left first, a report called Working for the Few. It was challenging... Uh, around uh, inequality. And what it did was it mined existing data um, and looked at existing data and we analysed it through our own lens. We have in mind a target audience all the time and because we're trying to be very cost effective we have multiple target audiences which sometimes means we fail but often means you need killer facts in there. So the wealth of half of the world Uh, is equivalent to the wealth of the top 85 in the world, and you can fit them on a bus, and you may have heard quite a lot uh, of that, and that suited the journalists, people like Mark, who want snappy, uh, killer facts. (laughs) But we've also been really challenged by social scientists on where we got the data from and where the sources, uh, etc., and that has to be very robust in in the same document. So we've learnt that. But we've also learned to try and value what we can do as an organisation. Another one, less well-known, in the balance, talks about what, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, we've done with our partners and with lots of other people to protect people in the most fragile of fragile states, where gender-based violence is a daily occurrence for many women in eastern Congo. So that capturing is also very important of our own programme learning. 
And there we've tried to show our results by using random controlled tests and goodness knows what else. But adapting that, that social context has been uh, a real challenge for us. So our challenges are our own culture, our own skills and experience, adapting uh, social science methodology, the time, the resources, the research, the value for money side of it. But also I think there are some barriers for us in the way uh, that research is um, and the academic world is, is structured. And I think the book is helpful in identifying how much uh, academics also need to think about their clients beyond their own selves, beyond the peer reviews, beyond the academic journals. But the incentives in the system need to change to respond to that. Otherwise, the use of the social media, the use of that wonderful, amazing resource for all of us, including our sector, uh, will not remain as well used as it possibly could do. That's my five minutes. Thank you very much. We move on now to Eileen Murphy, who's the Director of Local Government BFM, a new role, really, for the National Audit Office, one of the... Uh, one of the agencies that uh, LSE Public Policy Group has worked with over a, a long period of time and one of the most intense users of social science amongst British government agencies. So, Eileen. Thanks, Patrick. Um, I should point out, by the way, my name's Eileen, not Eileen, but uh, despite having worked with Patrick for the last 20 years, I don't think you've ever managed to get it right first time. There you go. Yeah, there we go. Um, I'm just paying him back, actually, because he used to do the cold reviews of our published reports, and uh, it was always a matter of some trepidation when you opened up to see what Patrick had marked you out of five. Um, and the fact that your reports inevitably lacked enough managerial and policy context. Not that I'm bitter about it after all. <laughs> um, I, have in fact, I have, in fact, left it all behind. But um, I'm very pleased to be, to be here this evening and in such a gust company, and not just because we don't get out much in the NAO, really. Um, but uh, my job is uh, to report on the value for money that government gets and what it spends, and I report those results to Parliament, and then Margaret Hodge beats up uh, senior policy officials. Um, and whether or not you think that's an impactful way of bringing about beneficial change, it doesn't matter. That's a system of bureaucratic accountability that we do, in fact, have at the moment. Um, but for the last 10 years, I did the justice and the home office, so most of what I'm going to talk about is related to my previous area of work. Um, so my job is to report on value for money, and a key part of the assessment, of a full assessment of value for money of any spending on any project or any programme is effectiveness. What effect has government got for the money that it's spent? Uh, it's much the hardest kind of value for money report to do, and I've done 52 of them, by the way, so uh, a fair range. I don't think I'm getting on a bit. I started when I was 10. Um, <laughs> but it's much, much easier, you see, to report on something like a failed government IT project. I've done a fair number of them, I can tell you. Um, but to work out that the, what the policy answer, what the question is, what the policy answer has been, where the money's gone, and what effect you've had out of it is really difficult. And for that, social science research provides us with, it, with a, a very welcome array of weapons. We're trying to look at that sort of thing. So, for instance, how effective is drugs education in school in preventing uh, problem drug use later on in life? Uh, how, to take another example, how effective is the investment, the, 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 a lot of money going in at the moment to prison building, uh, new house blocks, new prisons, whole new prisons? How effective is that in... in um, in helping rehabilitation along the way. Uh, and the answer to those, both, by the way, is not very much at all, and I'll get to why in a minute. But uh, what government does is it spends money and it tries to make humans change their behaviour in some of the trickiest areas that we've got. Uh, so, for instance, it tries to make us behave differently on a daily basis. It doesn't want us to smoke. 
it doesn't want us to commit crimes. It wants us to have a job and keep a job. And it wants us, by the way, to access all government services online because it's very much cheaper than anything else. Um, so the holy grail for the VFM auditor, when you're looking at that very tricky area of behavioural change and spending and causality and additionality, uh, is... Um, uh, is through objective, evaluative and independent. Very important that the, the academics looking at this are independent, even if they're paid for by government, to take an independent view. Um, so it's critically important to the work that I do. So to get back to my prison example, the physical estate, interestingly enough, uh, no matter what kind of prison you're in, has very little effect on rehabilitation. Uh, and I know this because I've searched high and low and we've multi-regressed everything you could possibly multi-regress. Um, and it has little or no effect on on people re-offending or why they re-offend. Uh, in fact, there isn't much proper evidence about why people stop offending at all. And this is one of the things that I think is quite worrying about social sciences research in some ways, is that we still don't have answers to very, very big questions like that. Um, and it's one area where more research is badly needed, particularly when you think about the fact that the government is going to outsource 70% of probation and add in a payment by results element to work with offenders. And yet we still don't know exactly in what combination and what things help the most. So what activities give you the best differential value for money return for your money? Uh, is it engaging with offenders? Is it education and basic skills? Is it housing advice? Is it making sure that they've got the one decent family relationship that works? Uh, and if anyone tells you they've got answers to those questions, then they haven't. And we don't know in what combination those things work with people either. Um, and to go back to my other example on drugs education in schools, absolutely no evidence that it, that it has any effect whatsoever. And sometimes government does stuff because it feels it has to. So it's more in hope than in expectation. But I think in times of austerity, when you look at the budget deficit, that really isn't good enough. And we need proper answers to those questions. I don't think it's a simple thing for social scientists to work with government or for politicians to work with them. I think it's, things can go wrong sometimes. Um, for instance, a very common thing that you see quite often is a small uh, study of um, something that looks terribly hopeful. So everybody jumps on the bandwagon. So we get you know, the whole probation service moving in a different direction because something has worked with 20 offenders in a small charity. So I, I think there needs to be intelligent use of the results. And sometimes politics and researchers collide very unhappily. Uh, and if you look, you've only got to look at the history of the advisory council and the misuse of drugs to see that. Uh, and I won't go into that any further. Um, but so in conclusion, because I think I'm getting towards five minutes and I don't want Patrick to interrupt me. Um, in conclusion, I think that social science research is critically important to the full and proper evaluation of government policy and its effects. Um, and it makes a huge difference to the work that we attempt to do. Um, I think it's central to government policy making because you have to work out what the question is first. It's very easy sometimes to slip straight to a solution without anybody being terribly clear about the question is that they're trying to answer. Um, and I think that it, the research should be funded on an ongoing, on a partnership basis between academia and government. And I think the results have to be used, particularly when they give an uncomfortable message to government. Because government finds it very difficult to stop doing things. Um, it's very unpopular to take something away, and they really have to grasp that nettle. And it's particularly important because we need evidence-based policy making, and what we generally have is policy that's in search of some evidence. Thanks very much. We move on now to, last but not least, Jeff Patmore, who was previously Head of Strategic University Research and Collaboration at British Telecom. Again, one of uh, Britain's really intensive users of university research, including in social sciences. And Jeff has got a wonderful 
blog, which uh, is on the Impact of Social Sciences blog, if, if any of you want to uh, get, to, get to see that. But he's going to give us the gist of this in just five minutes. Just Absolutely. Right. So, hello. So, a couple of admissions, first of all. Um, first of all, I'm an engineer. Okay, let's just be upfront about that. Um, the other admission, and this is a bigger one, uh, is uh, as engineers we like to build things. So in, in my area, in British Telecom, I, I used to construct business systems, um, quite large business systems. And probably a lot of you, along with about 18 million others, are users of one of my business systems that I deployed in 2002. Because I was responsible, here's the admission, for broadband. I deployed um, direct access broadband for British Telecom. Uh, I was responsible for the development of all the systems behind it, everything from catching the original um, request for it through to all the supply chains that sit behind it and, of course, finally billing people for it, all the business systems that sit behind that. So two admissions, A, I'm an engineer, and B, I deployed broadband. But the interesting thing was, uh, that's when I moved into research, because um, I found that some interesting things were happening as a result of, of providing the UK with broadband, and, and perhaps I should know, know a bit more about these. And uh, at that time, I moved across into manage, starting to manage what you've seen as this strategic university research program for British Telecom. To give you some context, uh, I retired from British Telecom two and a half years ago, and uh, the University of Cambridge invited me to join them. So I've spent the last two and a half years in academia, which gives me a nice sort of perspective to look back on what I did for 10 years uh, running research for, for British Telecom. I was introduced um, fairly, fairly soon after uh, starting the university research program um, to some social scientists. I hadn't really met social scientists before then. I'd been in engineering. <laughs> Um, I have to admit, I had one social scientist working for me, a team of about 200 people. There was one social scientist in VT, uh, a social anthropologist. Uh, and she did nudge me in the right direction every now and again about user interface design and that sort of thing. But I hadn't, I hadn't really interacted with social scientists. So when I took over the university program, um, I started to interact with, with social scientists. Um, I found it incredibly interesting. Some of my colleagues found it uh, strange. Uh, for instance, I, I met with some, um, some psychologists and some social, social anthropologists and some economists. You know, that all seemed fairly straightforward. Uh, when I met with some philosophers, they began to wonder if I'd lost the plot. But um, what I started to understand was that how people, of course, use the systems that British Telecom were deploying was incredibly important. Uh, and there's a couple of my colleagues are sitting in the audience, and uh, they would say, of course, that understanding the, the end user and, and, and actually putting the user at the centre of, of our system design was, was absolutely crucial. And, and I started to understand that. I, I had what you would might describe as a, a, an epiphany. I, I began to see what the social scientists could offer me. Uh, I worked with a young uh, social anthropologist who wanted for her PhD studies to understand the impact of broadband. Uh, this was wonderful. Um, and she taught me a lot about the way in which social anthropologists work. And they go and spend lots of time with, with people, sometimes tribes in, in jungles, but in our case, users of broadband. Um, but that, of course, taught me a tremendous amount about what, what people um, need 
Um, and also I learned the difference between wants and needs, by the way, and those of you, of course, in the social scientists will, of course, understand the difference between wants and needs. I had no idea. Um, and certainly uh, I might have asked people what they wanted, and, of course, I would have got a wish list. <laughs> so to understand uh, by studying people and, and filming people and you know, standing behind pieces of, of glass so you couldn't be seen watching people, these are things I had no, no understanding of perhaps 12 years ago. British Telecom, and, and thank you for saying, does actually interact um, now um, extensively with the social science uh, because it's really important that we understand the impact of technology. Um, fairly recently, we ran a study uh, where we looked at, because we had been asked to, uh, what is the actual impact of modern communications technology on people, on children, on families, on, on adults? Um, and we... Uh, looked at it not only in the UK, but we looked at it uh, across a number of countries. We looked at it in America, in, in the UK, in Australia, and in China. And the findings were incredibly interesting. And, and of course, the cultural differences came in. Um, in fact, uh, as you, you would obviously guess, um, some of the cultural uh, influences in China mean that the use of technology is actually different. Uh, I'm pleased to say the BBC did a, did a super piece on it for us. And, uh, it wasn't for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then we come back to this impact. So uh, how did we make sure that there was impact associated with it? So let's just take that piece of work that we did on looking at the, um, the way in which people use communications technology today. We worked with a very good PR team um, who worked with people like the BBC and many others. Um, we ended up with over 200 pieces of media coverage uh, for, the, for the research. The BBC kindly gave us about a seven-minute slot on breakfast TV and news at six. Um, column inches are really important. These days it's column centimetres. But the, the press coverage you get, you know, there was BT doing some interesting work in this area, looking at how people are, uh, are using communications. Is it, you know, are people feeling overwhelmed by it was an interesting question. You know, do you get too many emails? Are, are you being overwhelmed? All of that had a had real impact within the company. Think about how we can mediate some of those, those issues that do come up. And, of course, the press coverage does the company no harm whatsoever. It has real value and impact. So British Telecom does a lot of work with social scientists. Of course, we do a lot of work with, with um, engineering people as well. But, but the key is we work together um, with multidisciplinary teams, which involve the social scientists and, and the, if you like, the STEM areas as well. One last thing I'd like to just to perhaps trigger the, uh, uh, the conversation. The reason that British Telecom has very, very long relationships with, um, with academic institutions is we understand that if all we did was mine the information and took it away, um, we wouldn't have partnerships for very long. We do try and understand what the academics and the students want to get out of the relationship, and if it's publishing papers or, or um, getting involved in interesting pieces of research, then we make sure that that, that happens, because it, because um, a partnership is a, has to be a partnership and everybody has to gain value from it. And I think um, within British Telecom, that's very well understood. There must be value for both sides and if we can get that to happen, then we have long, sustainable relationships. Thanks very much, Jim. Well, now we get to the bit of the evening where we're going to really invite you to pose questions to the panel. And what I'd like very much to do is to have a, a microphone uh, on each uh, thing. And so if you could wave your hand if you'd like to pose a question. 
If you could possibly say a bit about, just tell us who you are, uh, that would be very helpful for the uh, conversation. And if you could address the questions, you know, to particular panel members if necessary, but ideally they might bridge across, across the, the, the whole panel. And of course, Nick will be uh, involved in responding to the questions he's already done his speech already. So we have a, a question over there, and then we have a question over there. Uh, do we have one more person? And then a question over there. So let's start with you. Yes, please. Um, hi, I'm studying international public policy at UCL. Um, I was just wondering, it isn't for any particular panel member, why don't we teach social sciences in schools? Yes, very good question. Thanks very much. We'll hold that. Um, this gentleman here. Thank you very much. I'm Mark Robson. I'm a member of the Hefke board and of the main panel C, Social Sciences, for the current REF. So academics tend to be unusually nice to me. Um, <laughs> we all follow suit. Yeah. The, you know, your, 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 your book has um, landed on my doorstep with uh, kind of fantastic timing for what we're engaged in in the REF at the moment. But what I wanted to ask you, sensing a tension in here between your categorization into STEM subjects, or let's say physical and life sciences and social sciences and humanities, um, that's mimicking the approach of the REF with the four main panels this time, at the same time as impact is being formally assessed. Um, uh, for the first time, maybe the last time, who knows. Uh, do, do you really think that's sensible? Have you felt constrained in this study by these rather arbitrary conventional blocks, is it still sensible for us to think about the social sciences in some ways being homogeneous? Okay, very good question. Thanks, the lady over there. Um, Sarah Teasley, reader in the School of Humanities at the Royal College of Art, and it's a slightly related question, which is um, to all of you, do you work with people in the arts and humanities to some extent? I know BT does, actually, some of my students, some of my history students have worked with you on a project a few years ago. But, um, I mean, do you look to history, for example, or other areas of the arts and humanities, or is it very much a social science focus? Okay, we have one more question. Lady, lady behind you. Hi, I'm Bakani. I'm co-founder of Vertigo Ventures. We're an impact reporting consultancy. I, my question is around what you think your role, the role of social sciences is in helping businesses quantify and value its impact on society. I think they've started to understand their impact on climate, but I think there's a real um, gap in understanding businesses' role in affecting communities. Thanks. Thanks. Okay, so I'm going to ask uh, maybe Nick to just pick up the last point and then Jeff to pick up the point about does BT get involved with the arts and then perhaps we might uh, get Aileen to say something about schools and social science and we can all have a go at STEM and social science and polarisation. So, Nick. Uh, th thank you very much. Um, uh, I'll deviate slightly into one or two others but if, if I can be very quick. Uh, we, teach we teach economics and statistics at school, um, but not much of the other uh, social sciences, and I, I think we could explore how to, how to do that better, and, and we should. Um, arts and uh, humanities, well, the British Academy is all about uh, the, the, the humanities and the, and the social sciences. And let me just give you one example. We're going to run a series of um, what we call... British Academy debates in the uh, autumn. It's going to start with ageing in 
the spring. But let me just um, take immigration. Um, you can't understand the role of immigration in a society without looking back at how our cultures uh, came to be what they are, how we became to be who we are, about discussing uh, identity and many identities. And that is a, a big policy issue. Uh, if you ask people where they put it in their ranking of policy concerns, it's quite extraordinary that people put it uh, in the first uh, two or three, or the first one. And uh, that's an example where it's actually impossible to discuss the subject without going into the arts and humanities. There's a lot to say about ageing in King Lear and uh, many other places. So um, uh, we don't uh, artificially distinguish in, uh, in the British Academy, and, and neither, neither should we. Uh, that doesn't mean that uh, in social sciences in general we're always very good at that. Um, on uh, businesses and uh, social science... Increasingly, they do look, uh, businesses do look at environment and community. And um, I think there are two lines of argument there. One is that this is what it is responsible to do. Uh, I've worked a lot in India, and as they say, it, it is their duty to, uh, to do that. But the second is that doing your duty is also profitable. Um, the first argument comes first. But the second argument is uh, also very relevant. Um, a, a bank that's responsible in its relationships in its uh, community, a mining company that's responsible in its relationships with its community, might also, in the first case, look after your money better, or uh, in, in the uh, second, uh, be much more efficient and effective in, in what it does. Um, now, to make that the case that I've just made, make the second one, uh, you need evidence. You need uh, to be able to show what the impact is. And to discuss the first one, um, you need to uh, think a bit about ethics and political moral philosophy. Well, those are all parts of the social sciences. Okay, thanks very much. Um, Jeff, do you want to say something quickly about uh, BT and the humanities or not? I'll pursue this by all means. Um, so, I ask why on earth would, would British Telecom be interested in. Uh, Interacting if you like, with, with uh, that part of the social sciences. BT has a, quite a long relationship with Goldsmiths College, and uh, there are some really interesting things that have been happening over the last 10 years. I'm sure not just at Goldsmiths, but I know um, uh, with, with some other uh, universities as well, in the way in which uh, technology has been used in design. Um, we have followed that, we have helped with, we've sponsored it. Um, I say we because I'm not British Telecom anymore, but you know, representing British Telecom. Uh, and using the power of computing and networks, some quite amazing collaborations can take place. Um, so, yes, of course, there's, a, there's a, uh, like an internal agenda, which is let's get more people to use networks and, and use interesting, um, you know, more broadband and more computing. But at the same time, supporting uh, some interesting new developments, and, and one that comes to mind uh, was a, a superb piece of, of um, graphical animation uh, that one of the uh, artists uh, did at Goldsmiths, which was a, essentially a, almost a fashion display, but, but just the clothes <laughs> that people didn't exist. Um, and it visually was just stunning. 
absolutely stunning, and we were we were very pleased to use it. Now, okay, there was a, I say there was some subtext about look look at the use of high bandwidth connections, um, but just supporting a, a something that, that people you know, was was just awe inspiring for people. Yeah, that's that's great um, and, and a fantastic thing to do. Thanks very much, Jeff. Aileen, oh, and maybe uh, Mark. Uh, social science in schools should there be more of it? What do you think? Well, I think one of the funny things about school is that it's so much still like the school I went to and the fact that you have to do, you know, three sciences and maths and English and all that. And I think that, that one of the things, I was pondering this last night actually as my daughter was agonising over her A-level choices. Um, I, I do think should, that it should be much more opened up and I think that, that subjects should not be seen as lesser or greater. I think if you're, if you're interested and good at something, then do that. And I know that sounds very simplistic, but um, that's what I think. Really. As a lone classicist, by the way, in the international office, amidst a sea of economists and statisticians, I, I think um, I think perhaps you've been slightly too gloomy about social science in school. They don't call it social science, but it is sort of everywhere. I think you know, it's in it's in human geography, social geography. It's in their PSHE lessons. It's in critical thinking. You could argue it's in in history, in uh, in English. You know, I think it is sort of everywhere. Um, and actually, the, the thing that I think... You mentioned economics and statistics, and, and while people can and do study those things in schools, they're not regarded as uh, actually you know, essentials. And I think mm. that the one really missing thing in our schools is not social science, but a real understanding of, of numbers mm. and how data works. And I, you know, I, I feel passionate about the fact that we need to, you know, our, our citizens need to come out of school with a basic understanding of how statistics work, because otherwise, you know, all the social science that they read, they're not in a position to say, that's a load of old tosh, or actually I really ought to take notice of it. So the one bit, actually, is the one that you think we already do, which I think we, you can do, but I, I, I would like to see everybody up to GCSE getting a grounding in, uh, in statistics so they can try and make sense of the huge amount of numbers that are buzzing around. The, B- the BBC has just appointed a director of statistics. I, I met him last week, and um, my, my, my thoughts were splendid. Um, uh, too late, but better late than never. That's been the story of the BBC forever. Penny, can I just ask you to address the polarisation of STEM, discipline, and social sciences? I, I know that in international development there's a lot of use of both social science and uh, you know, research in water and other kinds of systems. Yeah, no, there is. And I think uh, when it goes back to that whole school thing, there's some fundamental skills that you need. Forget the boundaries, speaking as a former teacher, of the subject areas. It's those fundamental skills uh, that you need. And those apply very much into, into INGOs as well for the kind of work we do. There's been a huge greying of boundaries on everything. Uh, you know, if you'd imagine 10 years ago that Oxfam would be working with a company like Unilever, uh, you know, forget it, that's crazy. But we are working with Unilever, who are serious about deriving societal value as well as economic value from their business model. Uh, that whole Rosbeth Cantor Moss thing is just, you know, everywhere um, uh, in Unilever. And we're working with them on looking at how smallholders can enter into a supply chain of a big food um, 
producer like, like Unilever, nor stock cubes, that kind of thing. Um, and, and that's going to derive good societal value. So, so looking at it not from this CSR type, you know, corporate social responsibility, not, not interested. But if you're interested as a business in your fundamental business model shifting to do the right thing, to be environmentally responsible, sustainable, um, or to be um, uh, providing the right labour rights, or indeed to be including marginalised people who should be producing the food of the world, smallholders, then we're very interested now in engaging with those businesses. And I think that whole growing of the boundaries, I think, answers both ends of that, that question. Well, I'm very keen to get some more questions, so let's move on with uh, the there. Hi, I'm um, Mike Sachs. I'm International Research Professor and former Chief Executive of uh, University Campus Suffolk. And uh, I wanted to ask a question um, to the panel, but it may be particularly uh, pertinent to the social scientists on the panel, as to whether social scientists themselves need to engage in more naval inspection about how they approach this whole issue. Because I think we, we can talk about prototyzing, you know, in terms of the value of social sciences. I'm all for that. I'm a social scientist. I can see the value. But it's also about how do we actually present our work so that, in a sense, it's oven-ready, you know, for, from the viewpoint of users. And I think Penny actually put her finger on it when she said that those who publish in journals need to look beyond the conventional journal audiences to other, you know, players, you know, whether they be in the private sector or public sector, you know, NGOs, whatever. And uh, I do think there's quite a major agenda there. I've actually published on this myself, you know, in terms of, um, you know, uh, being, uh, trying to escape the noose on value freedom and all these kinds of things and actually being more prepared to actually ask questions about how does my research actually apply to big world issues, you know, issues for businesses and so on, and to, to make it more oven ready, as I've said. Excellent. Thanks very much, Mike. And there was a lady just across the aisle. Hi, uh, Ellen Prine here at LSE. Um, I want to ask a question about the practicalities of um, developing relationships with organizations like yours. Um, academics talk a lot about the difficulty of gaining access to organizations. What is your advice on how they can gain access and develop relationships with your organizations? Adam Smith from Research Fortnite magazine. It's a question for Aileen, I think, mostly. Um, I wanted to ask, what, uh, how optimistic are you about the What Works network um, in light of some of your comments earlier? And also, how would you propose to evaluate the What Works network eventually? Thanks. The What Works network being a set of government-funded applied research Thank you. Hi, my name is Jackie Carter. I'm from the University of Manchester, and I happen to be a co-director for something called the Q-Step Centre, and that's just to flag that there is a big initiative in the UK funded by HEFG, ESRC, and the Nuffield Foundation um, to upskill social science students in number, so I'll talk to some of you about that afterwards. But my question really is about, um, I think it was Penny who said the incentives in the system are currently acting as a barrier, particularly with regards to academic reward. So my question to the panel is really, how do academics, early career researchers, for example, deal with that issue, the need to get published, but also the need to get um, known to raise their own profile if 
using social media and publishing in some of the non-academic spaces does not give them what they actually need to get progression in their career. Okay. Was there one more question? Hi, I'm Nicola Ranger from um, the LSE. I have a bit of a, a devil's advocate question based on the, the first presentation that would be great if the panellists could respond to. Looking at the, the sort of cost-benefit ratios that were shown at the beginning of the, what you get back from social science research, what do you then get back from having intermediaries? It seems we get a lot more bang for our buck from the intermediaries of social science than the social scientists themselves. So maybe as a, a thinking about how to improve the impact of social science rather than trying to get social scientists to learn how to tweet. We should be improving, we should be building on the, the intermediaries of social science. And I was wondering if the panellists could talk about if that's what they've found, if those people are important, who those people are, and how we strengthen them. Okay, thanks very much. And finally, one last question, yes. Thank you. Um, it's quite linked to some of the other questions, actually, from um, a slightly different viewpoint. Um, my name's Lisa Ollahead. I work for the Cabinet Office on... Um, the wellbeing policy program. Um, and we know that there's lots of work going on in universities um, about wellbeing, and we don't have the time or the journal access to keep up with any of it. And I would love it if social scientists would email me and say, here is my beautiful research, please do something with it, please take it out across government. And nobody ever has. So um, as somebody who is in a, on a very small program in government that hasn't had much attention but would really like to engage with social scientists, how do I do that? Okay, thanks very much. Now, six big questions. Uh, Eileen, I'm just going to ask you to kick off because you were uh, targeted by one of them. Ready? And then uh, we'll just get last thoughts for everybody else to, to wrap. That's okay. Because the drinks are beckoning in the last <laughs> Um, so you asked about, was I optimistic about the What Works Centre? Well, I, I, despite, despite the job I do and in the face of you know, government spending, I do remain relentlessly optimistic, actually. And I think the fact that they're, um, they're called What Works Centres is, is a really good thing because I think it focuses the mind on what they're there to do. Um, I also think one of the things that I, that's developed recently that I, I really liked was the Ministry of Justice's Data Hub. So that little, little charities and little organisations that did small-scale work with, with particularly hard-to-reach vendors could send their data in and it would be analysed and number crunch and everything and they would get results back. And the first six that went in, uh, three, their work had had no effect at all, as far as you could tell. Uh, two had had a positive effect and one was actually making people worse. So... Um, and that might be bad news, but it's also the news that people need because you need to know uh, what, you know, the fact, and it may be something to do with the people you had in the programme at that time or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I think the What Works Centres are a good idea. Now, as to the question of how you would evaluate them, I think it's much the same as you would approach any other implementation of policy. What are they there to do? How much money have they spent on it? Have they made sensible choices? Have they um, informed themselves properly about the best ways to do things? Um, so I think that I would go about it in that sort of way, actually. Yeah, and you'd be looking for the look, you'd be looking for the end stage all the time. So, what was the actual um, effect on the policies that were that were under examination in the What Works Centres? Hope that makes sense. Okay, Jeff. All right, thank you. Um, just something on uh, you know, an intermediary role and uh, and social scientists and raising their profile. 
So I can give you a, a nice little example. I, I work with a team of engineers and social scientists on a, on a piece of work, and uh, my role, part of my role, was to um, get them to uh, effectively communicate with a team of PR people from a, from a major PR company. Now, the, the, the thing that immediately struck me was that the English that the PR spoke, people spoke, and the English that the social scientists uh, and people spoke, and some of the engineers spoke, was um, somewhat different. Uh, and their understanding of, of that English was somewhat different. So having someone who's comfortable in both areas, this is the solution. Uh, you need someone who's comfortable in both areas, so somebody who can sit comfortably with social scientists and, and sometimes engineering people, and could also sit with a group of PR people and understand what they're trying to do, mediate um, uh, that, make it work as, as a conversation. So that they, you can take those... Um, yeah, colleague from the BBC said, you know, get that great snippet of the one-liner that will work for the media. Um, but also make sure that the social scientists are comfortable with it, because you can, you can extract those one-liners, and some of our tabloids are very good at it, but the, but the social scientists may not be comfortable with it. It may be, well, that's, you know, that's just taken my research far too much to an end, or it's, it, it's misportrayed my research. So that you've got to be comfortable. So there needs to be a mediation role between the two. But when you get it to work, it works incredibly well. So we don't want all of our social scientists to be, to be great media people and PR people. That's, that's not the answer. We want them to be very good at performing their social science. But we do need them to be able to work with PR people and media people so that we can get the message out there. Okay, thanks very much, Jeff. Penny, uh, thoughts on how social scientists can be more effective and joined up? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, being externally focused, um, the networking that was on the grid there, I think, is really critical. We, we don't actually know what research is being done. Uh, so, so the accessibility to the research you're doing is, uh, is quite tough. It's quite a challenge. And if you want to contact us, the flip side of it, yeah, you'll get put through to, to a generalist. But most... NGOs like Oxfam have research people or research teams, so actually asking to speak to the research team is probably a good idea. And if you're interested in doing something with us, then phone us up at the beginning, not at the end. Um, so uh, um, some of my personal frustrations uh, there. And just in terms of the incentives, I think there's a lot around uh, getting the incentives right and rewarding collaboration, rewarding how many people have picked up your idea, not how many papers you've published, or uh, how much you have learned from other people actually being rewarded for that rather than, uh, rather than perhaps the other way around. And just a very last comment on the well-being. Uh, yeah, I'd love an answer to that too. We all go around reinventing the wheel. You know, we've just produced this with, again, a joint academic uh, thing. This was with the Fraser of Alanda, Al Alanda Institute. Uh, Al Is it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, Aileen and Alanda. All in one. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's a humankind index based on the kind of OFI yeah. principles in our, in our neck of the woods. It's been done in a very participatory way with poor people themselves in Scotland. But we know there's lots of other people doing the same sort of sort of thing too. Thanks very much, uh, Mark. Uh, I just want to make sure that you don't go away thinking all journalists are interested in is the simple one-liner. <laughs> we we can do a bit more complicated than that. Um, and I think uh, a lot of the questions at the end there were really about you know how you get your stuff out, a relationship with people, how can we know what you're doing. And I think you can be a load better. I mean, one of the most frustrating things is, 
you know, actually, I can never bloody see the article. I can, you know, I get the press release, but I can never see the article. I can never find a number to call anybody to get the article. Yeah. And actually, you want to get your stuff out there. You're right. You don't. You're not going to be the world's greatest tweeters because, to be honest, I've probably got a few more followers than you. And if I send it out, nineteen thousand people see it like that. So I yeah, can but get. If I put it on the British politics and policy. I'm not saying one thousand. Okay, no, I'm not. I'm not <laughs> <laughs> All I'm saying is that if I can get it on the UK BBC News uh, Twitter site, then I'm talking about 3.4 million. Um, but, um, my Twitter accounts, but no. And, um, but I, 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 and actually, I think social media is really important in this because the way that I use Twitter increasingly is actually someone tweets, someone I recognise tweets me a link to something I can go and read it. I'm, you know, I find myself reading the most brilliant academic articles on the bus, even on the tube train these days. So that's really important. Um, so yeah, see what Dennis point is exactly right. You know, you, you need you need to be thinking actually. This is important. What I'm doing is important. I, I, I want the world to know about it. Who can I ring up? It might be somebody at Oxfam. It might be me. It might be something else. Finally, a plea because I'm gonna. I've just got agreement to BBC going to spend some real money on a big uh, social science project which I've invented to start. Uh, just before Easter. It's called Who Do We Think We Are? That's the working title anyway. It's going to be about identity. Uh, it's going to uh, sort of, fo- we're going to be using it as a way of doing a load of user uh, generated contact work about what people in Britain, how they relate to each other, how they relate to the outside world. Um, it's obviously going to chime with the European elections, with the Scottish independence referendum, with the World Cup, with the Commonwealth Games, and on and on and on the immigration debate we've been talking about. So uh, if you really do have fantastic uh, social science research in that area I want to know about it, I'm easy to find and I'll promise I'll tweet it to my moderately sized (laughs) (laughs) Nick, the person, the social scientist who's done it all, we've even in one of our reports had a a chart which shows, you know, coverage of climate change before the Stone Report and then after Mm. the Stone Report. There was an IPCC report as well but you know, you definitely changed, changed the debate. So, last words for yeah. social scientists. And I, I'm not going to get into this uh, macho stuff of minds bigger than yours when <laughs> on the tweeting front. But, but. <laughs> no, I mean, no. <laughs> um, the question on uh, interacting with those who have their head down in policy and. Um, I have done that, and, I, and I've thought about it. When I was at the Treasury, 2003-2007, um, now I was second permanent secretary of the company Economic Service, uh, my, my natural genetic makeup is not as a civil servant, but I, I was there for, for three years, and which were very instructive. In the first year, um, I asked a number of um, economists, um, people like um, David Newbury, who, who works on economics of uh, energy, Jean Tirole, who worked on um, the regulation of networks, um, all big sub- subjects for, for, for policy making, to come and talk. And they did talk, and they got very good audiences who came and asked questions. So part of it's in your hands. Put together a serious uh, uh, seminar series or series of lectures on what you want to hear about. Actually, talk to one or two people as you do that so you can find out what you might want to uh, hear about if only you knew it existed. Uh, but that's possible to do that. Now, that was then. That was 10 years ago. Now, um, 
with uh, our ability to cast that much more broadly electronically. I mean, you could uh, do it simultaneously for the whole group in uh, not just the cabinet office or wherever it might be, but a whole group of interested people in the civil service, and they don't all have to watch it at once because they can click into it. But they need to know it exists, and they need to know what it's for, and they need to know why it's important, and you could do that. So what I did with sort of a bit old-fashioned uh, stand-up and tell people about things, which I still think is a good way of communicating, um, but you've got, you don't have to confine yourself to that. You know, I watch Richard Feynman's lectures on physics, and he's been dead a long time. And it's the... Uh, it, it's, I think designing for you what you want, but with people who know what's available. And you might have to spend some time with them, because uh, academics don't know what decision makers want necessarily, and decision makers don't know what academics can do. And you have to sit with people and discuss it. Um, but you can do that. So don't just wait for us. Uh, take an initiative, but uh, you, should find, uh, you should find ready takers. Um, on well-being itself... Um, there is lots going on, but we should celebrate that. It's not that it, 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 it's, uh, it's changing the way in which we look at uh, a policy right across the board, and that's as it should be. Um, you, you, you'll remember Gus O'Donnell, the Cabinet Secretary. Um, he and I are, are working on, a, again, a British Academy debates on well-being and public policy. Not just well-being, well-being and public policy. What difference does it make to public policy if you have different concepts of well-being? Who are you to go around nudging people by ordering the sequence of preferences that uh, come their way? Those are questions that have to be asked and have to be examined. So I think that uh, there's plenty available. We're going to be, uh, rec we're going to be putting those uh, online and we're going to be tweeting as to their availability. Not on my tweet. I don't have a tweeter. But the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because on the whole they just generate abuse in return <laughs> but they're not always not always so I think there are ways of doing it and the development of social media development of electronic access has made the kinds of things that we used to do much more easy and much more uh, much more productive okay. thanks very much indeed Nick now uh, it remains for me to thank the whole panel uh, Mark Easton Penny Lawrence Aileen Murphy Jeff Patmore and Nick Stone, please could you join me? <laughs>